Hello and welcome to the Smells Like Infinite Sadness podcast. I'm your host, Michael Taylor. Those of you who don't know, I run the website, SmellsLikeInfiniteSadness.com. It's a blog covering the best alternative rock from the 80s and 90s up to present day. I'm a proud middle-aged Gen Xer who is still obsessed with the music of his youth and loves to talk about it. And this week I'll be speaking to Wayne Hussey, best known as the vocalist and guitarist for influential goth group The Mission, which Hussey formed shortly after leaving the Sisters of Mercy. And one of the mission's biggest hits, of course, is Tower of Strength off their 1988 album, Children. And Hussey has recently recorded a new version of the song to be released as a charity single, whose proceeds will benefit a variety of charities who need support during the COVID-19 pandemic. The track, which has been retitled Tower of Strength 2020, will be released on August 28th. It features a massive amount of collaborators, including Depeche Mode's Martin Gore, Gary Newman, The Cult's Billy Duffy, uh, Budgie, uh, Slow Dives, Rachel Goswell, Nine Inch Nails, Robin Fink, J. Michael Asson of Gene Love Jezebel, Bauhaus Kevin Haskins, and many, many more, which we're going to discuss further in the interview. In today's conversation, Hussey discusses what inspired him to undertake this project, how he assembled such a formidable list of guest performers, the realities of being a working musician during the COVID-19 pandemic, upcoming projects, and much more. So check out the interview and stay tuned after it when I'll be playing the new single. You've you've done this Tower of Strength, this new version, as as an I you know as a, as a charity single to help with frontline workers for for who are dealing with COVID nineteen. Did, did you when did that idea kind of first occur to you to do that, and how did that immense list of collaborators start to come about when you were getting ready to? Well, <clears throat> we were actually on tour. The mission were actually on tour in Europe when the um, pandemic really kicked in. I mean. I, I, I've been at home in Brazil, and I started reading about this new virus that was, you know, um, having an effect in China. And I was like, hmm, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Let's hope, let's hope that doesn't spread. Anyway, by the time I got to Europe and started rehearsing with the band, it had spread. And I think at that point, Italy was the first country to really suffer with it. And um, we, we actually started the tour. We actually played 10 shows. Of It was about 55, 50, 56 show tour. We played 10 shows and we were in Lisbon. And by that point, countries were closing down. You know, borders were closing down and, and they were closing the borders and stuff like that. So it was like we thought it was the best, best move all around to actually, you know, try and get home. So basically, we... we uh, we were on the tour bus racing board, racing borders before they closed down to get back to the UK. And when we got back to the UK, Craig and I, Craig lives in the US, went directly to Heathrow and managed to get ourselves both on a flight the next day out, uh, you know, the next day, flight out the next day. And um, a day or two after that, uh, the lockdown was um, enforced, you know, so we would have been, you know, we were fortunate because we could have been stuck in that hotel at Heathrow for God knows how long. But anyway, when I got home, um, obviously, you know, the, the, there were a lot of people that uh, were disappointed with the tour being cancelled and and, um, and and as the, the pandemic took hold, I was getting more and more messages from people saying, you know, I work in the NHS, you know, do you mind if we play Tower of Strength in our hospital? It's become a bit of an anthem. Um, other people were saying, why don't you release Tower of Strength as, uh, you know, as a single? Um, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be very pertinent now, you know, lyrically, uh, for the, you know, release it for the NHS actually was the first um, suggestion. 
And um, it got me thinking, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been asked to do one or two things for charity re- regarding COVID-19. But I have, I have to say that I, w- I didn't feel entirely comfortable with what I was being asked to do. And um, so I came up with this idea of re-recording Tower um, because there's already, you know, 15,000 versions of the mission, mission plane Tower out there already. So I thought, what could I do different? Now it was like, okay, I could look at my little black book and get all the names and you know of my friends and acquaintances who were musicians and see if they'd be up for helping me. That's basically what I did, you know. And I, and, and um, I, I, you know, then I was talking to my wife one day here, and, and uh, I'd already by that point um, been in touch with a few people that were living in the U.S. People like Richard Fortas and Robin Fink and Gary Newman even lives out there now. And um, and Tim Palmer even who lives as I said mentioned before he lives in Austin, and um, it seemed a little bit weird for me to say well we're doing this for the UK, the, the NHS in the UK, um, but you know it means nothing to you but you, you mind doing it. And my wife actually suggested why don't you get everybody that contributes gets involved to nominate their own charity. You know, the NHS can basically look after itself. The government should be subsidising that anyway. Plus, it's already had, you know, lots of donations. Um, this way, everybody that is involved has a vested interest. You know, they can choose their own charity, and that could be, that could be a global charity, which some people chose. It could be a national charity, uh, like Tim and a few others in the U.S. have chosen Music Airs, which is basically a, a Grammy uh, is set up by the Grammy Foundation to help out, out of out of work musicians, you know. And, and then there's other people that have gone very local, you know, just very very localized charities, which which is great as well. I mean, there's so many worthy causes out there, Michael. You know, it's impossible. It really, you know, to to, to you know to to whittle it down to one. And we, I just thought in the end, you know. We could do, particularly for the small, smaller charities, local charities. What we can, what we can do, it, it, what we can donate through this, is probably more beneficial to them than some, you know, some massive global charity. You know, where what we donate might just be a drop in the ocean to them. So that was the, that was the idea, and I put that, you know, the idea to all, all my my friends in acquaintances and you know and a fair few said yes okay we'll, we'll get involved and there were a few that declined and there were a few that didn't bother replying you know so they you know, be crossed out of my little black book um although i'm just, i dare say i will still send them christmas cards <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it really that, that's how it really uh, evolved and that, and obviously that that i think that that was 24th of april when i first sent that well, sent out the first invitations, and within a couple of days, I'd had first um, uh, um, contributions. I think Martin Gore was one of the very first, and uh, Miles Hunt from the Wonder Stuff. I mean, basically, my, I got something back from Miles within the day, which was, you know, wow, all right, wow, you're not, a, you're not a busy boy then. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, you know, so uh, and others and others, it took me a while to chase them down. And it's like, yeah, you promised me this, you know, and that was a month ago. Come on, I need it, you know. So I, I, I became that pain in the ass that, you know, you, you dread 
seeing that name in your email inbox. It's like, oh, not him again. What's he want now? Please leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's a dirty job, you know. So somebody had to do it. And so, yeah, I was, I, I was, yeah, I was, I, I think I've sacrificed some friendships for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in addition to who you've listed, I mean, the, the amount of collaborators is, is insane. I mean, you've got Billy Duffy, you've got Budgie, you've got, you mentioned Gary Newman and you mentioned Martin Gore and Miles Hunt, but you've got the Aston brothers, you've got Jezebel, you've got Kevin Haskins, Walter Hurst. I'm just naming just a few mid mid year. Yeah, you're you're going you're going the eighties indie eighties uh, alternative route, aren't you? But there's there is people like Robin Fink from Nine Inch Nails. Yes, yes, he's there. He's you know he's a he's a friend of mine. Rachel Goswell. Yeah, she yes yes she's a friend too, and and Richard Fortas from Guns N' Roses. You know, so yeah, I mean, you know, good on them all. I mean, they all came through for me in the end. It, it was it was an interesting uh, process because basically what I did was I put together uh, a, a very basic um, initial drum loop with a, a strung twelve string acoustic guitar and a guide vocal, and I said, "Do what that, do what you will with this." And so in the end, nobody really, so everybody did their parts, but nobody actually heard what anybody else had done. You know, so it, it, it became, for me, it was a huge, huge editing job, you know, getting stuff in and, you know, getting, guitarists love to play. Let's put it that way. And there was, you know, sometimes 14, 15 tracks of, from one guitarist going all the way through. <laughs> so it was a case of really having to sit, sit there and sift through it all and find the very, very best bits or, or bits that kind of worked with how I kind of envisaged it. I mean, it, it was an awful lot of editing. But um, for me, that was the most interesting part of the process, in, in, in a creative sense anyway, was hearing what people came up with um, independent of what anybody else did. So did you kind of say, you sing this line, you sing that line, or did everybody sing their version of the song all the way through? You just kind of chose the best parts of every person's contribution, or how did you decide who sang what? In the beginning, I didn't want to sing on it at all. I thought, well, you know, there's already, as I said before, there's already, you know, loads of versions out there with me singing on it. Mission versions, live, studio, remixes, blah, blah. Acoustic. And um, so I, I was hoping I would get a whole bunch of different singers in. So the, initially, I just said, said, sing the song, and I've just... Um, you know, choose a line or two of that, uh, that you know from what you've done. But um, as I went along, I realised that it was quite difficult. Singers are weird, and musicians are weird, but singers are the, are the weirdest of the bunch, to be honest with you. And to get them to to sing the whole song was quite difficult. And I, only, I actually only got two or three, maybe four people who actually sang the whole song. In the end, I had to be specific and say, well, you know what, just sing me the first verse and I'll take, or the first two verses and I'll take something from that and I'll use it. Or just give me the last verse and a chorus, you know. So that's, the, in the end, that's how I had to do it because um, I think asking musicians, uh, singers to, to sing the whole song um, was maybe asking a little too much. And, and the surprising thing is the amount of musicians of my generation, I won't, I won't, I can't talk for younger generations, that don't really know how to make music on a laptop at home. You know, you're stuck at home. It's like, well, I'm, I'm, I haven't got a studio. Well, do it on your laptop. 
I don't know how to. Well, you know, use Cubase or Logic or something like that, Pro Tools. No, I haven't got it. Well, then record it on your phone. And so in, 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 uh, in Billy Duffy's case, that is what we did. You know, basically, Billy, I sent him the backing, the, the backing track and then he, he put that through a, a stereo and put his phone by his amp and recorded his guitar playing along. So that's how we got Billy Duffy on it in the end. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I tried to persuade singers to do that. Just sing it in the phone. No, no, you know, I need, I need this app, certain microphone. I need this, you know, I need the right environment. So yeah, I mean, as I said before, a lot of it was spent. A lot of the time was spent chasing, and a lot, all the other time was spent editing. Well, I think but yeah, it's... we we got there in the end. Well, I think one of the one of the biggest feats that you did was you got the Aston brothers, Jay and Michael, to sing on the same song, which is something that I don't think that they, they've, they've done in quite some time. I've interviewed Jay a while back, and and I've actually had Michael email me a few times that there's a, a, obviously a contentious thing between the two. How, how did you convince them both to do it, and was there any pushback, or did they kind of just suck it up and say, "Sure, we'll do it"? Or what was that like approaching both of them? Well, there was a certain amount of conniving involved, you know. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm a friend with, you know, Jay's a friend of mine. Um, his version of Gene Loves Jezebel have played with the Mission many times, even on the last, even on the last shows we played in um, Spain and Portugal this year. I mean, Jay was, you know, they were supporting us in um, uh, those shows, even the last ones being in Lisbon. Um, Michael, I've met a couple of times, but Michael was also is also a friend of Michael Siravolo, who is the CEO of Schecter, who's my very good friend, who has been kind of uh, kind of almost um, an assistant, if you want, on this with me. You know, he's been so helpful and and in many many ways and and encouraging. And um, anyway, he he has played in Michael Aston's um, version of Gene Loves Jezebel, so he knew Mike. He knows Michael. So between us, we came up with this idea. I'm going to ask Jay, and I'll get him to sing the last verse, okay, just the last verse. You ask Michael, get him to sing the last verse, okay? That's all we need, just the last verse and a chorus and a chorus. But we won't tell the other, the other you know, we won't tell Jay that Michael's doing it. We won't tell Michael that Jay's doing it. <laughs> Bless him. My, Michael, Michael, when Michael Siravolo uh, asked Michael Aston, Michael said, yeah, I'd love to do it. But I bet Wayne's asked Jay, hasn't he? And Michael didn't say anything at that point. You know, he said, don't know, don't know. But when, when we got when we got the vocals in and, um, you know, I edited, edited them and put them into the tracking stuff, and uh, I, 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 I felt it was just the right thing to do to go back to each of them, say, look, by the way, you know, your brother's on it. Um, and I know it's a weird thing, Michael, because – Nobody but Michael and Jay knows the dynamic of that relationship that they have. You know, we we can observe it from from a distance, and in my my from my point of view, I always think these when when you have a relationship, certainly with family, that's estranged. I think life's too short. You know, you know, mm-hmm. it's like. If it, if it was me and my brother, my mum would just knock our heads together and say, come on, get on with it. Even now, at 62 years old, she, that's what she'd do. She'd just knock my head together up with my brother, you know. And um, I, I just uh, think it's sad, you know, that, that their relationship is the way it is. And um, I don't know why, you know, because from what I know of 
well, from both of them actually, what I know of both of them, you know, they're good, they're good people. So uh, I don't know. Maybe if you know, if if if, if nothing else, if if it leads to Michael and Jay actually talking to each other, it would be nice. Yeah. No, I think that's it's a major a major achievement. So I would, I yeah. a lot of people be surprised by that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely would require a bit of conniving in the first place. Though <laughs> I'm not, sh- I'm not sure how they would. I mean, in fairness, when we did tell them both, they were both very gracious. Said, "Yeah, you know, it's fine, it's fine, it's cool. You know, it's it's for a greater cause." Which, which is, you know, very gracious of them both. Well, one thing that occurred to me listening to the new version, which I love, by the way, I think it's it's really, really very cool, and I've been listening to it a lot. Uh, Thank you. But what what gets me is it just kind of reminds me of how epic and anthemic the, the song song is, and how it was when I first listened to it. You know, way back when I was was in high school. And uh, did revisiting that song bring back any memories for you? And do you have any any strong memories recalling how the original song came about? Well, it's a, it's a weird one with Tower Strength because it, 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 if when people ask me, you know, what's your favourite song to play live with the mission, I invariably say Tower of Strength. It, is, it has become an anthem, certainly between us and our audience. It's that, it's that moment of communion with us every night when we play live, even if we're having a crappy show, you know, and it's not going very well. We play Tower and it elevates the evening somehow. Somehow it just, you know, it's, it's the song of communion for us in our audience. So um, it holds a very special place. And in my mind, whilst the new version is great, I really do like, I like it. I like it too. And it, to me, it feels like a cover version as opposed to a a new, a a new version that I've done. You know, my, my um, contribution to it all, I'm going to play a bit of guitar and I, and I sing one line in the end only because everybody said, you've got to sing something on this. And it was like, really? Do I really have to? <laughs> and, uh, so, I, so, you know, I gave myself the last word, basically. My, the very last voice you hear singing is is, um, is mine, you know, the last tower of strength. Um, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 a song that in many ways for me is, is the archetypal mission song. It's got all the good and, I suppose, some might say um, bad elements of the mission you know it is melodramatic it is grandiose it's it is anthemic it's you know it's something that comes along and it's big huge and, and it's that's the way it's supposed to be you know and i and i think in some ways as i said before i think this is the mission version is the definitive version but saying that i think the new version is is is, is very very worthy um you know to, uh, uh, to stand alongside in the in the as as you know, a new version of Tower of Strength. I think it's. Um, I think the new version is great. Actually, it's probably perhaps a little bit more rocky than uh, the original, um, and perhaps well, it's definitely more anthemic because you got that big, huge, loads of people singing on the chorus thing. Hmm. Mm. Well, I, I know that living in the states, it's been frustrating seeing how we've fallen behind in, in combating COVID nineteen just due to poor leadership in general. Yeah, well, we're, like I say, Brazil's in a very similar, if not worse, situation. Yeah, I mean... At least you've got a general election coming up, so you, you can rectify 
Oh, so at least something. <laughs> Hopefully. God, I, I hope so. I really hope so. Uh, yeah. It's it's a uh, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah. um but uh, you know I have this theory that you know if it if Trump hadn't come to power in the U- in the US then I don't think Bolsonaro would have come to power in the U- in, in Brazil. Uh, I think I think w- it's when somebody comes into power like that he's 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 you know evidently not a politician Trump. You know, he doesn't speak a politician's language. He just, and I think that's why he has such devout followers is because he speaks their language. You know, he speaks his mind, even though we all know he's blatantly lying. Yeah. He just, he just speaks in, in a way that anybody else would. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't um, couch his, what he says in, in uh, political speak. You know, polit- politicians have always kind of a, always avoided the question you know they, you ask them a question and they, and they you know they always skirt around it but trump he just says what's on his mind and he and, and he comes across as petulant um, um belligerent you know all the all the uh, ists as well and that, and i think him coming to power is actually how can i say this made the world more extreme as a result politically not uh, the world, not just America. I think you know. I don't think Bolsonaro would have got in in Brazil if Trump hadn't got in America. Yeah, I, I and I kind of feel that we wouldn't have a Trump if there wasn't for Brexit. There's kind of a domino effect across the the globe. Absolutely, that. yeah, it, it is a domino effect. You know, I mean, you know, the the these. You know, I don't have a problem with right wing politics or left wing politics or middle whatever. You know, okay, everyone's entitled to a political opinion. And the problem is, the for me is is the um, the way it's gotten ex- extreme. You got extreme left. You got extreme right now. And though, though when it's extreme, it's that's when it's dangerous. That's at at its most dangerous, I should say. Yeah, I, I agree. It's 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 gotten just so so polarized that it's hard to get anything, yeah, has, anything yeah. done. But yeah, as that kind of source of frustration though that was that one of the, the things that kind of led you to, to do this be pro- proactive and trying to do something in combating this or not not really i mean it, it, it's just my you know people were asking if they could use it in a hospital radio and stuff like that and, and i just thought you know i'd like to do something I, I i don't really have i don't know what i I don't. I'm not rich enough to donate. Certainly not rich enough to donate anything that would make any difference. Um, but so, what can I do? I can make music. I can try and you know um, persuade some of my musician friends to help me with this, and we can maybe raise a little bit of money and and do a little bit of good. You know, I mean that that's that's it really. I mean, it's not going to change the world what we're doing. But it's 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 our, our attempt to just kind of you know bring a little bit of positivity to it all and and trying to help as much as we can with what we're doing. You know, you were mentioning earlier about having you know, your tour cut short because of this, and we obviously know mm. that that the coronavirus poses a, a huge challenge to musicians right now because the main way that you, know, you make money is is by touring. And that's yeah i mean you know unfortunately yeah i mean that's that's the case um as i said we were in the middle of a tour and we we managed to play 10 shows fortunately otherwise if we 
I mean, we, you know, we would have lost money if we hadn't if that tour had gotten cut um, earlier. You know, because th there are all the costs of setting up rehearsals, uh, hotel. You know, we lost money on hotel bookings, flights, and stuff. We lost money on, you know, um, it, it. Yeah, it, it's a treacherous time for many, many people. I mean, um, how can I say this? Oh, in, in the end, we will suffer financially, but the situation we find ourselves in, us at the, as the band, the mission, is, is nowhere near as bad as millions of other people in the world, you know. So uh, at the moment, we're okay, you know. Um, we came out of it and we actually were in the black um, with the tour, just about. So we didn't lose money. Um and we, we, you know, we, we still have merch, merchandise on sale, which we, you know, brings in a little bit each month, which, you know, it, it, one, one thing about the lockdown, Michael, is that whilst you're not earning, you're also not spending. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, so, you know, okay, it's like, where, where's the money? Well, we're not spending as much anymore. You know, we're not spending money on clothes or going out to, to, to the cinema or, you know. Or, you know, those kind of things. You know, it, it, you're not spending the money that you normally do. So in that, in that sense, it's, you know, it's been okay. We can, we, can, we can get by with what we have. But at some point, you know, is that, it's going to be like, hmm, getting a bit close now. We need, to, we need this thing to go away so we can go back out and work. I mean, do you, do you feel that eventually we'll get a vaccine things will go back to normal or do you think that it's going to be kind of forever changed as, as for how we're going to you know, deal with like live events and things like that well, I think it's impossible to actually predict you know I mean I, it, it, in an ideal world I don't do, do we really want to go back to the way it was I mean it's it's as much as we were used to it not all of it was good mm-hmm it's hard to say good things, but one of the positive things, I suppose, about the early lockdowns in Europe was the uh, the amount of um, well, the lack of pollution that was that the cities normally, you know, um, produced. You could you could see from, from satellites, you know, that the city was clear, that the air was clear on in, in cities, European cities, and in that in that sense, you know, you think, okay, do do it does. Does everybody really need to go to work? You know, there's so many people working at home now. Yeah. Why Why can't we continue with that in the future? Why do you need to go on a plane to go and have a business meeting when you're all doing Zoom meetings now? That's that's another factor. You know, why, why do we have all the expenses of running an office in, in city centre when you can do all this from home? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's... I don't know what the new normal will become, and I, but I do think there will be a new normal. I'm not quite sure. I know that, you know, the music business is probably going to be the, one of the last um, businesses that kind of – because entertainment, you know, whilst there's no money around, entertainment is going to be the a thing that will suffer, obviously. Uh, but saying that, I mean – you know, there are people out there that are trying to do something different. I mean, that you know, there are people that do the uh, the online shows, acoustic shows and stuff like that. And I've seen, I've seen a few, and I think it's all very, very commendable. 
but ultimately it to me it you know it doesn't sound very good you know when you're used to going to a show and you have the sheer volume of of the sound in the room and you have the interaction between you and whoever's on stage and you but you don't get that when you're watching it on your iphone you know yeah it's not the same yeah it's not the same and it would never never will be the same but um i don't know i i, I mean you know the the thing is about COVID-19, there's still really not that much definitive information. And I know everybody's in really hoping for a vaccine soon. <clears throat> and even some people, are, you know, some countries are claiming they've got one, like Russia have claimed. But how can they really have tested it? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's not been enough time. I mean, OK, it might work for what? It might be a vaccine that works for a couple of months. And then you, you know you you're not immune anymore. We nobody knows. Nobody really knows. You know at this point. But I guess at some point, yeah, I guess at some point, you know, they they have to take the chance and say, okay, roll it out and let's see how we get on with it. I mean, I think I'm I'm very fortunate because where I live in the countryside, it's it's uh, it's I'm secluded up in the hills. Um, we have some land. I can go outside. I have a studio at home that's in a different building to the house, so I can actually get out of the house and go to work, you know. But I, I know I'm one of the lucky ones, you know. I know also we have an apartment in San Paolo, in High Rise, uh, you know, well, all the apartments in San Paolo, High Rise. And um, I know there's families been stuck in there, in, in that building, for months. Families in, in small apartments, you know, and, and it's like, okay. How how do people deal with that? How are people dealing with that? I, but I I know I'm a lucky one. I, I know I'm I'm lucky with what my situation. I think we've all kind of kind of had to learn to adapt. I mean, we're both working from home, and we've got a toddler that's bouncing up and down, so it's been a real challenge just just figuring out. But, but at the same time, I mean, my wife has been. I mean, she's actually gone back to San Paulo earlier this week. Um, she's an actress and she starts work on a, a film this coming week. Um, and there's lots of protocols in place for that. She's got to be tested for COVID before they start. There's a nurse on set that needs to take their temperature every hour. It, things like this, you know. And she, my wife's very, very nervous about all of this, obviously. And of course. Yeah. And she's been home for, since March. Um, and and she's, ne she, you know, she's never... we. She's never at home for that long. She, she'll come home for Christmas and holidays and stuff like that. But, she, I mean, five months? She hasn't been home here for five months, I don't know, probably ever. So um, it was kind of nice having her home. There, there, were, there were occasions where it was, you know, um, certainly when we, when we tried to work together, we did some recording together. She, she sings and plays ukulele. And um, I think <laughs> there were a couple of fraught moments in the studio because I'm used to having my, my getting my way in the studio, and she's uh, used to getting her way. So uh, it was a couple of fraught moments. But besides that, <laughs> just just the, the fact that we were able to spend five months together in the house, and it it it, it, it was lovely, and it was um, it, in a way it it kind of. Um, it was a period of getting to know each other again, really, a little bit. Yeah. I guess for some people it's like that, but for others, I've, I've got friends who are tearing their hair out. And they're, <laughs> they're, on, they're on the verge of divorce, you know? Yeah. 
So it affects everybody differently, I guess. But uh, as I said, I, I do feel very lucky with my situation here. I think if we if we'd been stuck in San Paolo in the apartment, then I think we might have been, you know, fighting for divorce by now. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, that that kind of led me to my next question. You mentioned uh, collaborating with your wife. I mean, how much recording have you been doing in your since you've been kind of in lockdown? And have you worked on any other mission material or any other solo material? How how has that been coming along? Um, no, not really. I mean. Uh, when I got back, when the first thing I started doing was I've got boxes and boxes of um, old cassettes here, and unla- I'm mostly unlabeled. And you know, there's there's little there's like rough mixes and demos and things like this, you know. And so I so I spent the first couple of weeks kind of listening through to the cassettes. And if I don't know if you remember what cassettes are like, it's quite a lengthy process to rewind a cassette all the way to the beginning. And then, you know, and then, uh, so but basically I did that and then I was digitizing the bits and pieces I wanted to digitize. And I was putting together, basically, I found, you know, found demos of all various mission albums, that I, my original, you know, four track demos, whatever. And um, I, I'm kind of archiving them, whether they will actually see the light of day in the end, I'm not sure. But it, it's something I just feel like I wanted to do whilst I had this time. It's a weird thing, though, because I, I I wrote a book and it came out last year, and um, it's basically it's, it's an autobiography. But it it basically the first the book is the first book of two. <clears throat> if if the, the first book finishes when Craig and I leave the Sisters of Mercy, and I need to write a second book, you know, mission years. But it's a weird thing being here and being in this state of mind. I've not really felt creatively inclined. It's a weird thing. I feel like tying up a lot of loose ends rather than being creative. I don't know if that makes sense. No, no. For me, for me, for me, I have to kind of clear the decks when I get, for when I get creative. I mean, um, so I've not been able to, I mean, I you know, I sit there at the piano and play guitar and play guitar and come up with little bits and pieces, but actually writing songs, no, I haven't done any of that. No, I I think that's that feels accurate to me because I know that I mean we're both working from home, dealing with a toddler, and and I like to write, and even lately I just haven't really felt like doing anything except for like watching a movie once we get done with work and, and going to bed. It yeah, does, it does kind of sap you in a way. It's hard to do. Yeah, yeah. So it's not. It's it's just. Well, you've got the toddler. I've got no excuse. We've got five dogs. You know. I mean, that's. But um, that's. It's not that. It's not even that for me. It. It's not about the energy because I do have energy. I could do other things, but it's. It's more about. I need to be in the right frame of mind to, to make new music or to to write up the book. I mean, certainly with the with the book. There's a tone to the first book that I would like to continue with the second, and the tone there's some kind of levity to the, the to the first book that I you know would like to maintain. But you know I don't I don't feel like that at the moment. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know whether it would actually change the tone of. I mean I've written I had I'd written some of it before the lockdown, but um, I don't know whether it would change the tone. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like okay, I really don't feel like it yet. Um, saying that, though, my wife came home, and as I said, she she plays the ukulele, and um, she's she does you know she's 
I bought her a ukulele for a wedding anniversary present a few years ago, and she loves it and taught herself to play. And she does cover versions. But um, we've, we've talked about doing some recording of her in the studio um, a few times, but, you know, having not been at home for any length of time, really, over the last few years, it, you know, time, time's been a factor. But so this time we, we, we went in and did it. And we did, um, first thing we did was a cover of... Um, I say we, it's her, you know, it's, it's all driven by her. I just basically the engineer, producer. Um, it, it's uh, a cover of Morrissey's Every Day is Like Sunday. And um, it's it's on the, it's on YouTube and um, her name's Cynthia Hussey. I, I'll, I should send you the link, actually. It's, it's, it's good, it's good. I mean, it's, it's not uh, your typical mission fair, but it, I think it's a very, a very, very good version. And I think... Um, it surprised me how well uh, how well uh, Cynthia envisaged this in her own mind, and know, and even though she doesn't know the you know studio lingo talk, you know it's like um, um, can you track that please, love? What does that mean? Track? I don't know what that means. You know, double track it, sing it again. I'll keep the first one. We'll do another one. Oh, okay. You know, so she whilst she doesn't know all that, she does know what the end result should be for her and um and i and i find that you know quite refreshing refreshing because a lot of musicians i've worked with over the years are very um they are you know they're, they're quite vague well i think if you're going to pick a song to cover right now that's that's a pretty that's another pretty f one <laughs> it really yeah well, that was it yeah that yeah that's another yeah i mean the lyrics you know you know every day is like sunday but there's also the dust i don't know dust it comes and settles on your hand and your face and it's like wow you know yeah quite prescient really and um yeah so but that's so we did that and then we we did a couple of other things and now we've been uh the, the most recent thing we were working on is um her first she's written a song she, well, she's written a few couple now, but the first song she ever wrote. <coughs> Excuse me. So we've been working on that. So it's it's cool, you know. It's cool, and it and it's as I said, it it it's like almost being creative, but in a very it, it, not for myself, for someone else. So there are there are parameters, but it's a, it's a different set of parameters that that would be that I would impose on myself, say working on a mission album. I think one thing that that occurred to me listening to Tower Train twenty twenty, it kind of made me kind of go down the the mission rabbit holes in some of your, your earlier stuff, and even your your Sisters of Mercy uh, output. And one thing is, it's so prominent is your guitar style. That shimmering twelve string sound is so essential to 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 your work. It makes it so distinctive. I was just kind of curious, how did that sound evolve? When did you kind of decide that the twelve string was your instrument of choice? Um. I think when I was with Dead or Alive, actually, I, I got my first um, twelve string, an acoustic twelve string, and we used that. I used that on a few things, uh, early Dead or Alive stuff, and then I got an electric twelve string. I'm not sure whether that was well when I first joined the Sisters, or I already ha- had it when I joined the Sisters. I can't remember, but when I joined the Sisters, I ended up using the electric twelve string um, more live than the six string. Basically, two reasons. One, as a, as a contrast, sonic contrast to Mark, um, Gary Marks, the other guitarist, he played a six string. 
So, so to you know, to blend the two guitars, I thought, you know, well, what use the twelve string, have the six and the twelve. Also, on a very practical level, using a twelve string, if you break a string on a six string, then you're you're a little bit buggered because you only got five strings left. Whereas if you break a string on a twelve string, you've got eleven left. And I don't know if you know how twelve strings work, but there's basically two sets of six six strings mm-hmm. all tuned. You know, tuned. To, you know, two strings tuned to the same note. So, you know, it definitely once Gary Marks left the band and we were out playing live, the twelve string was far um, more practical for me with the sisters than in the six string. You know, and it, it, the guitar solos I tended to play, or, or, or in, in those days, were, were never about bendy notes or you know bending the notes. It was more just. It was more about playing notes just the pure notes with a 12 string it's very difficult to bend the strings but yeah i think it just came about for practicality really you know pragmatism <coughs> and um it just became a sound that evolved and, and I, you know and you know i, I let, listen back to stuff i've done even some of my demo demos early demos and stuff and i can hear um I can hear the the, the way that the, the guitar style has evolved as well. You know, the kind of hanging arpeggiated notes, flanged and phased and delays and stuff like that. So, you know, so I can hear I can hear all that evolve in, in over the course of all my demos as well. But yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, when we started the mission, yeah, I carried on using the twelve string. I did go I did go through a period though for quite a long time. I didn't use the twelve string for a while. Uh, you know, reverted to six just felt easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But plus, by that time, we, we we had roadies that if I and I had spare guitars, I'd roadies and roadies that would be able to restring the guitar really quickly if I needed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I I I know how difficult it is to play a twelve string. I've I've I play guitar in my off time, and I I, I just I. Can't imagine playing that is my main instrument. So my hats off to you because it's it's such a cool sound. And it's just yeah, it, it, yeah, it, yeah. It is. It is. A, it's a great sound. I, I do like it when it when it's right. I mean, there have been times I've walked into venues and our guitar tech is sound checking my guitar rig, and uh, you know it's coming out through the piano. I just think, wow, that sounds glorious. You know that that sound is just beautiful. That twelve string going from uh, and the effects I use are all old. You know, I basically use a, a, a Roland GP8, which is from mid mid eighties. I've tried lots of different things since, but I just keep going back to that through a JC120, and that's it. That's the sound, and it's just like oof. it rings, it shimmers, it rings, and it, it it's it resonates, and it's it's, it's a beautiful sound. Well, I think that wraps up all my questions. I, I wish you a lot of luck with the single. I'm definitely going to promote it and, and get it out to my listeners. And uh, really enjoyed talking talking to you. And uh, likewise. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, mate. All right. You too. Take care. You take care too. Bye bye. A big thanks to Wayne for taking the time out for this interview. You can pre-order Tower of Strength 2020 and its various remixes in a variety of formats on the Mission UK's official website, which is missionukband.com you can also see all the various charities which will benefit from the purchase of the single so let's close things out with Tower String 2020 until next time stay safe and stay sane 
Tell me. 